Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 4, which is found on page 487 of the Church Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 4, starting to read at verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, We will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, 
and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Joe, for uh, reading God's word to us so clearly. And um, it's great, isn't it, to be back together and uh, let me just uh, add a, a warm welcome to that of Matt's, particularly if you are new, if you're visiting us, uh, maybe this is your very first time, then uh, please don't rush off. Uh, we have this newly refurbished church down at the back. We can serve tea and coffee at the end. So we'd love you to stay around to introduce yourself so that we have the opportunity uh, to get to know you. Well, before we dig into God's word together, would you join me for a short prayer? Lord our God, we are conscious again, this is the scripture. This is your word. You caused it to be written. We pray, O Lord, as we read it, that you would grant by the Holy Spirit elimination, that we might read, mark, and learn, and inwardly digest, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now there's a scene in the Lord of the Rings in the two towers when Aragorn is at Helm's Deep. It's at the Hornburg and Aragorn is speaking to Gimli and, and Legolas and they're preparing for the battle that's about to happen that evening. And there's a picture of old men and little boys and they're putting on armor that's too small or, or too big for them and they're trying to lift up swords that are too heavy for them. And Aragon says, farmers and ferriers and stable boys, these are no soldiers. And Gimli says to him, they've seen too many winters. And Legolas says, far too few. And there's a, an earlier scene, earlier that day, when Aragon is speaking to King Theoden, and he's trying to convince the king, who actually knows, but he's trying to convince the king that these armies, this 10,000 army, it hasn't come simply to plunder crops. It's come to destroy the world of men. And Theoden turns to him in anger and says to him, what would you have me do? Look at them. Their courage hangs by a thread. And if this be their end, I would have them make such an end of it that it would be worthy of remembrance. Well, our story before us this morning may not be as dramatic as the great Battle of Helm's Deep, to be sure, but it's a real story. And it's a battle for survival, just the same. See, this tiny little community in Jerusalem and their lives are being threatened. Their wives and their children and their homes are being threatened. 
Now let me just back up a moment and remind you where we, we left off last week. We left uh, the people of God hard at work rebuilding Jerusalem. And we asked ourselves, what does that mean? What does that look like for us? Does rebuilding Jerusalem have any relevance for you and for me? What does the Bible mean by building Jerusalem? Jerusalem is Zion. And in the Old Testament, it's the earthly counterpart of the heavenly city. And building up Jerusalem is establishing a gospel witness to the heavenly realities here on earth. And we know this to be true, don't we? That buildings don't declare God's praises anymore, but we do. We are living stones who are to witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the true house of God. Our work of building up Jerusalem, it's not about bricklaying. We don't declare God's praises by having an impressive walled city or a, on a newly refurbished church. We declare, God, declare God's praises by speaking of him, of being God's witnesses to all the nations. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. That is the true work of building Jerusalem. And the walls were a picture of that. And actually, you'll remember, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 17, and we saw that the witness of the walls was actually worked. Here is the, the evangelistic result, if you like, of their building. 150 Jews and officials ate at the table, as well as those who came from the surrounding nations. And for sure, as they sat around Nehemiah's table, they will have heard about the gracious hand of God, how he got, them, got him there in the first place, and now how he's, God has helped them build this wall, these walls. Now, no good thing will ever be allowed to go on unharmed by Satan. We are to expect opposition. It's one of the Apostle Paul's observations coming back from his first missionary journey as he went through Lystra and Dar, and on his way to Antioch that it is through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. Every good work will be opposed. Every attempt to advance the kingdom of God will meet opposition. Opposition from Satan who prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And don't make any mistake about it. Behind Sambalat and Tobiah, there is the malevolence of Satan. The evil one is at work there. And in these verses before us this morning, we see the tactics of the enemy in Nehemiah's day are exactly the same tactics with us, and he used them against our Lord Jesus as well. We'll also examine the secret of overthrowing and defeating him, which was not only Nehemiah's, but also our Lord's, and must be ours if we would overcome the enemy's attack then, it begins with words, a whispering campaign, psychological warfare. Verse 1, Sambalat, who is the governor of Samaria to the north of Jerusalem, knowing, of course, that Nehemiah has come with letters of commendation and permission from King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, so he needs to be careful what he's saying and what he's doing. And he begins there, verse 2, to speak to his men and to, and to, the, to his army of Samaria. And word of what he says spreads. Now, one wonders... How Nehemiah knew what Sambalat was saying uh, to his men. Perhaps you might imagine Sambalat's, uh, by own, own, his own device, that there were men who were being sent into the city to spread this word. 
And if we want to know what Sambalat was, uh, had been saying, look at the questions there in verse 2. These are the questions he was asking. What are those feeble Jews doing? And what a shower they are. What a feeble, sorry lot they are. They're not soldiers. They're not even war builders. They're just old men and women and little children. Will they restore their wall for themselves? See, the task, you see, is utterly beyond them. Will they sacrifice? Do you think if they offer a few sacrifices in the temple that the wall will rise by itself by an act of magic? Will they finish it in one day? Do they have any idea how long this task is going to take? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? And then Tobiah adds, verse 3, that even a fox getting up on the top of those walls will bring those walls tumbling down. You see what's going on here? It was a whispering campaign, psychological warfare, and it got to them. And no doubt there was a brave face on the outside, and you can imagine yet, in the evening, when, when the sun is, is going down and the tusks seem to be stretching out before them, and as they found themselves asking themselves, well, what kind of wall are we building? You know, we're not stonemasons. You know, there were temple guards and goldsmiths and perfume makers. What did they know about wall building? Whispering campaigns and psychological warfare have always been a part of Satan's attack, and they still are today. How subtle, how modern is this approach? When the Christian dares to say that the only hope of the world is in the gospel of God's redeeming grace, the whole force of modern civilization and education lines up against him and says, you with your feeble prayer meetings. You with your silly little plan of getting people converted one by one. How can that possibly stand alongside our great socializing economic program in which a world can be revolutionized in a matter of years? You feeble little lot. There's a, there's a scorn of the, of the husband heaped upon the wife who receives Jesus and is going to live for him. The scorn of the parents, sometimes Christian parents, whose son or daughter express a desire to do full-time Christian ministry. The scorn of the, the young person when their friends hear that they believe in God and they even go to church. You see, the spiritual battle is just as real for us as it was for the people of God in Jerusalem. And the tactics of assault are much the same. Now, what are the priorities, then, that we can derive from these verses to help us overcome the evil one? Well, it won't surprise any of you what, uh, what those priorities are, uh, what the answer is, because we've been returning to the same uh, priorities week in, week out. The importance of prioritizing prayer. And the importance of working together, of prioritizing partnership. Now, incidentally, we're going to take a break um, from the book of Nehemiah. We're going to come back to it in, in the new year. Uh, and these are the two priorities I'd love for us as a church family to keep at the forefront of our minds in the coming weeks and months. So let's have a look then. At first, at how Nehemiah and the people of God model the priority of prayer in the spiritual battle. 
Boxing legend Muhammad Ali used several ring tactics to defeat his opponents, and one tactic was taunting. Uh, in his fight with George Foreman, Ali taunted Foreman, and he kept saying to him in the middle of the fight, you know, hit harder, show me something, George. That don't hurt. I thought you were supposed to be bad. Fuming, Foreman punched away, furiously wasting his energy and weakening his confidence. It's an old tactic. Nehemiah, however, refused to be intimidated by the jeers and the taunts of the enemy. Instead, he prayed, verse 4. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insult back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, Nehemiah is a man of prayer. I'm sure we've all been struck again by this as we've walked through these chapters together. It probably explains his quiet, resolute confidence that displays itself and so evidently through the whole of this story. And the people of God here are up against it. There's pressure on every side, and it must have felt that they were losing the fight. But Nehemiah prays when the pressure is on. We've already seen this, haven't we, in chapter 1. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 4, with the arrow prayer. And we see it throughout the whole of this chapter. Nehemiah's first instinct is to pray. It's the priority of prayer. And this is something fresh and exciting that Nehemiah brings with him to the fight in Jerusalem. What is thrilling is that this priority of prayer is beginning to rub off on the people. You notice here how they respond to the whispering campaign, the taunting, verse 4, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. It's not Nehemiah praying here, or at least it's not Nehemiah on his own. The people corporately come together and pray, Hear us, our God. It is actually a prayer that echoes something of Nehemiah's prayer back in chapter 1. That They're reasoning and they're seeking to persuade God to act, to intervene for his own glory. Hear us, our God, for we are despised by Sambalat and Gang. Verse 5, do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Or a more literal translation, do not blot out their sins from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Listen to us, and we say it respectfully, God. This affects you more than it affects us. This is your honor. This is your glory that is at stake here. And they're asking God, notice, to judge their enemies. Verse 4. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over to be plundered in a land where they are captives. It's not their land. Is Nehemiah being mean here? Surely he should have been praying for Sambalat, not asking God to punish him. Ordinarily, yes. That's the right response when someone is bullying or threatening us. But here... Sambalat is threatening to kill them. Lives are at stake. Some of us may have a Sambalat in our life. Someone who taunts us or seeks to make our life miserable or seeks to take advantage of us. 
It's a reminder we should pray for them. But also we see here how God maintains the people's integrity. It's not acceptable to be treated like this, particularly where there is a power imbalance. It's an army that they're up against. And sometimes we have to do more than pray for them. How was the opposition overcome? Did Nehemiah panic or get worried? Did the people answer back or retaliate? Not a bit of it. What did they do? Well, we've seen that they had a heart to pray. What else did they do? They get on with the work. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Or as the ESV translation puts it, the people had a mind to work. Now, I think that is a magnificent statement. They just kept on building and ignored them, for they had a mind to work or a mind to spread the gospel, the good news, to witness See, God's people did not mope over the difficulties. They simply concentrated on doing the thing that God had called them to do. And it was not through sheer willpower that they did this or dogged determination. It was with the help of the gracious hand of God through prayer. Prayer first, action second. My friend, that is how the Lord Jesus overcame for us. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus overcame his own fears and doubts with whole nights of prayer, with sweat and blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he triumphed in doing the will of God. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He just went right on through until at the end of it all, having come through all that hell could concentrate upon him, he cried as he hung upon a tree, it is finished. So heaven was opened from that day to every guilty sinner who comes to God through faith in the atoning blood of Jesus. That is how he overcame. So the people not only had a mind to work, a heart to pray, but also an eye to watch. The opposition didn't stop, and because the taunts and whispering campaign of Sambalat and Tobiah had proved ineffective, the wagons now began to circle, verse 7 and 8. And you have the, the Arabs to the south, and you have the Ammonites to the east, and you have the Ashdodites to the west, and you've got Sambalat and Tobiah in the north. And you've got the wagons circling Jerusalem. And you notice what the people did, verse 9? We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. That's a beautiful thing. See, Nehemiah is determined that as they prayed and worked, he would also see to it that there was a sentry on duty night and day and that every section of that wall should be guarded by the sleepless vigil of people who watched for the unexpected attack of the enemy. 
let us be watching out for one another. Oh, that the Lord would give each one of us an eye to watch for that person who's struggling, for that family that we've not seen for weeks, for those who are new to CCF, for that person who is lonely. Now let's use these next few weeks as we come towards the Christmas season to look out for one another. And this remark we prayed and and set a guard exactly reflects the faith of Nehemiah. It's our first point, the priority of prayer, but it's also our second one, the priority of partnership, of working together, or someone coming to your help when you're weak or defenseless. Now, Donna Carlisle saved my life. I was in year seven of high school, and she sat next to me in geography. That was not a choice thing for either of us. We sat boy and girl to try and keep some vague sense of order in our riotous class. I was, I was little for my age, and, uh, but if there was one thing I knew is that you didn't mess with Donna. Her reputation went before her. And so we shared the table. Well, she basically owns it with me hanging off the edge, writing on my knee. But then everything changed. One day, somehow, and I still can't explain how, I fainted and slipped down my chair, and I came round to find my head stuck in the gap between the backrest and the seat of the chair. And I was trapped. Donna looked down. And she saw what had happened, and she instinctively acted. She ripped the back off the chair. (laughs) She picked me up, dropped me on a chair, and said in her best Yorkshire accent, All right, uh, Johnny. (laughs) Now, we never discussed the incident. But from then on, Donna became my protector. And she always had an an eye out for me. You won't forget that illustration, will you? See, God's people had a mind to work, a heart to pray, and an eye to watch. And therefore, for a time at least, these enemies were held at bay. But here we now find something even more serious. See, it's one thing having an external threat. It's another thing altogether having an internal threat. See, the task was only half completed, and the people were getting weary. This was the psychological moment for a fresh onslaught from the enemy. Taunts and jeers, having failed, now were replaced by threats of a full-scale frontal attack upon Jerusalem. And it's all becoming a little bit too much for some. Here there is this internal trouble that's striking at Nehemiah. Verse 10, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. There's a beginning of of a loss of confidence in Judah. The strength of those who who bear the burden of the mission. The stalwarts is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And the enemies said, verse 11, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to their work. And the Jews out in, in the hinterlands 
nearest to the oncoming armies are feeling the heat even more. Ten times you'll notice in verse 12, they petition for help. It's time to get serious and the work stops. Nehemiah sets in place more guards, verse 13, and the work of rebuilding stops. Nehemiah stops. Everyone stops. And can I invite you to stop for a moment? We're told there in verse 6, the people had built the wall till all of it reached half its height. In other words, they have reached the halfway stage. The task was half finished. And I want to suggest to you this morning that any work of God or in any Christian experience, that is the hardest place of all. Now, many of us have stood at the foot of a mountain and seen far away there in the clear sky what we imagined was the summit. And we set out to, to climb with great enthusiasm and, we just, and we've headed up the mountain and we found it gradually gets steeper and steeper and, and rockier and rockier and our progress was slower and slower and our breathing got louder and louder. And presently we got to a point didn't we, where, we, where we stopped and we looked back to see the progress that we had made and then we looked up at the summit and we discovered that we were only halfway there. Actually, what we had thought from ground level was the top of the mountainside was merely a peak. And there was much more of the mountain out of sight, which we had only now discovered. The halfway stage is the toughest of all. And this is true in the Christian life. Now, when the early days of conversion are past and the early experiences of the wonder of salvation are forgotten. And yet, in the normal course of events, life's journey still has a good distance for us to travel. Now, maybe we are beginning to find that the Christian battle has taken out of us more than we had imagined. See, nobody had ever told us what it really meant to be a Christian and the cost that it would mean to me, to my family, to my loved ones. Maybe we're in the heat of the battle at the moment with the fight raging around us and we're beginning to ask ourselves, how shall I ever get through to the end of that journey? Maybe that is how we all feel to a greater or lesser extent. It's certainly how the citizens in Jerusalem felt. And Nehemiah says, Look to the creator who sits above the mountain. Now it's hard to escape the thrill of the 14th verse. It says, and Nehemiah here is giving his autobiography, I looked. And at that moment, with all the pressure upon him, with all the consciousness of fear in his own camp and doubt and uncertainty among his people, aware of the ruthless force of the enemy, what else would Nehemiah do? He just locked up. He prayed. And it gave him perspective. So he was able to bring truth to the people, verse 14. And he says to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord 
who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord, the God of heaven, the Lord whose name we are to revere, the gracious hand of God who is leading us. The God of heaven will give us success. You are in his will and you are doing what he has called you to do. And then he said, fight for your brothers and sisters. Fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Everything was at stake in the battle. Everything that was dear to them depended on the outcome. Is that not true of the Christian life today? We wage warfare for God as we seek to stand true to his book, which is his word, and the great doctrines of our faith, even close to home, they are under threat. It is also true that our homes and our children are at stake. In the midst of the secularism, materialism, and liberalism that sweep through this country and the world today, everything is in the balance. Remember the Lord your God and look up. And if Nehemiah was addressing our weary hearts this morning, he'd also say, look around. And look, for our encouragement, how the people of God fight for each other. They cover each other's backs, verse 16. Half the people did the building works, while the other half defended them. They share out responsibilities. Everyone has a part to play. They all carry a sword, verse 18. And each one of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked, which for our purposes must be a Bible. They also come to one another's help when needed. You see, the people evidently had a mind to work, a heart to pray, but also an eye to watch out for one another. They prioritized prayer and they prioritized partnership. And yet to me, the most exciting thing in this whole passage is in verse 20, where we read, our God prioritizes his partnership with us. Our God will fight for us. We're not in this battle collectively on our own. And we also read that Nehemiah had a rallying point for his whole army. He kept a trumpeter always by his side, verse 18 tells us. You see here that the work was large and the area was immense and the workers were widely scattered and were all um, laboring together at the same time. And I want you to imagine just for a moment the great commander touring the walls, going around to all his co-workers and encouraging them, giving them instructions that at the sound of the trumpet they were to leave their work and rally around him for the final overthrow of the enemy. See, the focal point was on their commander. And at the sounding of the trumpet, they were all to gather as one person to win the victory. Need I comment? Need I say any more? Oh, could we have a worldwide vision of the church today for a moment? Could God open our eyes to see our missionaries scattered all over the world? The ranks are very thin with many other lands cut off from fellowship and there's not easy communication. The work is great and the area is immense. But wherever they be scattered, there is one mighty commander-in-chief, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he is the rallying point for all of us. And one day, the trumpet will sound. The rallying call will come. And on that day, we will be taken from our work to meet him. One glorious day, the enemy will be utterly overthrown. How wonderful it is to know that we are in that fight. Although the struggle may be terrific, the onslaught tremendous, and the journey may seem to be long, we are united together under our great Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, the journey will be over, the trumpet shall sound, and Jesus will come. One day, our enemy will be fully vanquished. Amen. Well, we're going to sing again in a moment. <clears throat> but before we do that, would you just join me for a short prayer? Father, we thank you very much for this chance to be together. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as your, as your church family to prioritize prayer and to prioritize partnership, looking out and caring for one another. And we thank you this morning that you prioritize us. And we thank you as we've been reminded over these past weeks that you know us by name and that each one of us can take confidence from the truth of your word this morning and the promise that our God will fight for us. Amen.